Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, I've been waiting for this one for a while. After a tumultuous three years, WPP ANZ's new boss, Rose Hersig, is on the mics today with WPP's Global Chief Marketing and Growth Officer, Laurent Ezekiel. Did I get that right? Bonjour, Paul. Phew, that's Très the bien. first one. I've got to get through Très a bien. whole 40 minutes of this one, Laurent. So we're going to try it. Rose somehow, in the meantime, uh, navigated the upheaval that came after the now mothballed board of the listed WPP ANZ which decided to bring in a new CEO from Germany, Jens Monzies, that ultimately triggered a failed mutiny, but still ended at the same point, a full takeover by WPP in London of the ANZ business and the exit of Jens Monzies. That's the well-known juice this industry tends to love, but it's history. Now Rose is charged with rebuilding WPP internally and to the market. Both fronts weren't looking pretty for some time, but if you've had anything to do with Rose, she's all energy, ideas, strategy, culture, and optimism. The latter I'm not so good at, so this conversation is about why and Rose thinks WPP can get back again in this market with some momentum. And interestingly, her colleague Laurent Ezekiel is not in an entirely different universe. He's traversing the globe for WPP after WPP's mastermind, Sir Martin Sorrell, was booted by the board and has waged a relentless campaign against his old ship for being too big, old, slow and siloed to survive. Interestingly, though, when I had Sir Martin on the podcast last year and asked him why he didn't fix what the new team under Mark Reed needed to do, he said, and I paraphrase, that he couldn't. So we're going to hear from Lahore on how WPP's global recovery is going and what big brands and advertisers want. He worked on WPP's biggest post-Sorrel deal, winning the lion's share of Coca-Cola's $4 billion end-to-end media data and creative contract. And Laurent has some really interesting perspectives on where the world is going. So between he and Rose, I've got my schedule very full. Enough from me. Welcome to you both. Um, Laurent, let's start with the global worldview. You're across all the big global pitches for WPP and what blue chip brands and marketers want. So let's start with Coke, I think is a good one. Um, The Coke win and more broadly, the most pressing challenges facing marketers and what they want from marketing services firms. You're talking to a lot of people, Laurent, and how radically, I guess, is the question, how radically is it all changing? And welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Big intro, sorry about that, but now we get to hear from you. Absolutely. So um, you wanted to start with Coca-Cola. I think for us at WPP, first of all, it lasted a year. Uh, The pitch was a long one, right? It was a long one. Yeah. It was a long one. So uh, lots to talk about if you've got time. Yes, we have. That's a great one. I really want to dig into that. So yeah, shoot. What were the the big takeouts for you on, on that pitch, both through it and winning it? What happened subsequent? Yeah, I think through it was interesting. I mean, in summary... It started off as a creative pitch and a media pitch uh, running a little bit separately, uh, slightly different times. And then as we went through the year in 2021, they sort of merged together in the summer and became effectively a a full scale marketing pitch. So the nature of the pitch actually evolved, which I think is quite interesting. Why did that happen? Well, firstly, it was through COVID. That would have been crazy as well, trying to, you know, coordinate a global scenario where you couldn't really do anything other than virtual conversations, I imagine. It was entirely virtual, you know, many meetings through the year. And I think there was just a sense that the ambition from the Coca-Cola company was extremely high. And to deliver on that ambition, uh, a simple, full service, fully integrated uh, solution was probably the way to go, given where the Coca-Cola company were at. And they themselves were going through a huge transformation called Emerging Stronger just the year before. So they've been through a lot of change themselves and a very bold uh, move effectively to make the decision that they ultimately made back on the 8th of November last year. So the brief shift then through it, it expanded as they dug in, they thought, what happened? How did that evolve? I think they saw different things and from different companies and ultimately what they saw from us was a vision of full integration at scale that's never been done before and I often talk to my team about I use the word pioneering and I don't use it lightly but uh, if you look it up it's about breaking new ground and I think that's generally what they wanted to do and it's what we're doing together with them as we move forward it's 200 plus countries. It's about 200 brands, a portfolio that used to be 400 brands. So they've rationalized it. Mm. And it's every single marketing service. So creative, social, technology, media, of course, brand PR, production, transcreation, adaptation. It really is scales like never before. Yeah. 
and it needs to be. And they talk about being a networked organization and the, the team and model and partnership that we have set up is very networked in itself to enable working with them. And so you've done things like this before in different ways. Ford, I remember, is, you know, it was one. So this is much bigger, much different, more, more deeper and wider than what you've done in any of these specialized units before. I think what's interesting about it is that it's the geographical and brand scale. So as I said, they've rationalized, they themselves rationalized their own portfolio. And, you know, if we sit here today, we could name many of their brands. But there are 200 that we need to focus on across. They're organized in nine regions now. Right. Uh, which covers every single country uh, around the world. And so in terms of scale and in terms of making sure that, you know, the ongoing discussion in the industry around global and local mm. and so on, and that is a balance that we're trying to get right with the Coca-Cola company at unprecedented scale effectively. You know, the ultimate global local sort of ambition is in front of us. So how is your side structured, Lahon? What does it look like from yep. WV's perspective? Are you clearly, I mean, we, I know this is covered, but, but you're pulling from lots of different of your networks, right? And there's a, how many people are involved in this? So the premise is that open source creativity ideas can come from anywhere. And in the case of this partnership, ideas can come from anywhere, from any company across the whole of WPP. So it's full access to the whole of WPP effectively. And uh, we, of course, organize ourselves a little bit around that. We have regional teams and I won't go into too much detail on how we're structured, but We've enabled a couple of things, I would say. One is um, access to the whole of WPP. Two is integration at every point. So the way that we've structured our teams means that when we pull and, and work with our amazing agencies uh, around WPP, it's with an integrated mindset. By that, I mean the approach is always going to have design and shopper and creative right. and media and PR and so on and so forth. I mean, that's very important. As you open access to WPP, we've opened that access in an integrated way. Open X, the X is the point of integration, right? Um, effectively. Uh, and the X also signifies marketing as a multiplier for growth. That's one thing. The second point I'll make is that the system and process that we have created with Coca-Cola allows for partners to join the efforts. And I think that's very important. I think uh, other partners outside other partners, WPP, absolutely. you mean, right. and, and that can be, they can be big, they can be small, they can be platforms and so on and so forth. But I think it's very important that we embrace partnership. You know, one of our values at WPP is open and, you know, it's no surprise that that's the approach we're taking with the Coca-Cola company. We know that we have to partner to grow together and we know that we need to use and leverage partnerships to grow. And I think that's very important. Mm. It's not a closed system. It's actually an open system okay, we're doing most of the work, but it's an open system. It's interesting. So what are the expectations for output, effectiveness, efficiencies, productivity, impact? I'm sure there's some, the mapping has gone on there somehow. You're going to give us all that um, right now, but, <laughs> but what are the, like there's got to be some rationale as to why there's some benefit for this. There is, and I'm obviously not going to go into the detail and the numbers, but effectiveness and efficiency features heavily, but genuinely, Amazing creativity that drives growth is the most prominent discussion, right. genuinely. Like, we just got to get back to doing amazing creative work and recapture being the best marketing company. Okay, in the can world. we stop there? Because I hear this all the time, right? And, and I totally agree with yeah. that. And most agency groups and holding companies will agree with it. Often, though, that, that notion and that talk around creativity. Clients talk about it, getting it to the end game, actually getting it over the line becomes really, really, really difficult. There's lots of, lots of reasons why. Yeah. Are we really going to see Coca-Cola get way more creative because of this model? And what's the preparedness on the client side to push that? I hope we do. And I, I'm confident we will. And let me just give you a couple of, be a bit more specific. So we were appointed on the 8th of November. Uh, it's now the 26th of May. So the work is starting to come out that WPP and OpenX were responsible for. I'll give you an example of one platform that's just gone live, which I think is brave and bold. Heat happens right. from Sprite. Have a look when you get a chance. Uh, it's a global platform. It's tailored by region because that's what we need to do. It's bold. I think it's innovative. It uses a lot of the services that I've mentioned earlier. And uh, I think it's proof, actually, that uh, the, the model's starting to work. And we've done all the work on that. Okay. So, so it's that's one of the early, early it's, bits it's one of the, show. It's one of the early, work, early bits of work that we show. The, another example is the um, New Year work we did in the Chinese New Year work we've done uh, as well. So Lunar New Year, which I think was a lovely platform you know, it had a film element, but it also had a very heavy competition and NFT component to it that was very successful. And I think, look at that. 
and it's recently won um, won some awards. So it's you know two tangible examples of of the work starting to come out, and we're we're across all the brands. So you're going to see a lot more work coming out in the, in the months to come. So that one heat happens was the speed to market. Had you collapsed that? I'm hoping or imagining that there was some speed. There was some turnaround time that was quicker. Heavily collapsed in terms of the way we worked, and you know the it was run out of China actually, and I think it's bold work and it's it's gone to market very quickly. Yeah. Let me try it on. I don't know if we're going to get anywhere on this, but when we talked earlier about the efficiencies and the speed and so forth. Are we talking about quantums of 10, 20% as a result of the combined group of WPP and Coca-Cola and what it might have done and what you might have done um, historically? What sort of quantum are we talking about there in terms of better efficiency speed? Is that a ballpark that's reasonable? Yes. 10 to 20%? It's a ballpark that's reasonable. I'm not going to go into the numbers. No, So, but it's that range. It's a ballpark that's reasonable. I tried. You um, did. Now, Rose, I'm going to pop over to Rose for a second. Um, in terms of everything that's just talked about now, Rose, in terms of the Coca-Cola model, does that fit with what you're trying to do here? Is this, it sounds pretty similar to some of the other things you're doing. A hundred percent. And even yesterday, you know, Laurent was meeting with our local people who work on Coke right. across all of our businesses. Today, he's actually got a workshop after this session, in fact, with the local Coke clients. It's real. So I'll when, these, along for that if you don't when these global wins happen, it comes to Australia. And we also have opened up our network and we're a much simpler business these days, Paul. We're nine networks. We're tidy. We talk to one another all the time. We work together. Everybody is aware of what OpenX is and how that translates into our market. But it's just fantastic because it's real. Mm. And we're working on briefs. We're waiting for briefs. We know these clients. We're all connected. The wonderful truth of it is that everyone's talking to everybody. And that is encouraged. Talk to your colleagues, VMLYNR, talking to Wanham and Thompson, talking to Ogilvy. Right. Right? That's great. Creative teams talking to one another. It didn't typically happen really though, did it? Well, there was, a time, much, there was a time where it didn't. And as I say to all of our people right across Australia and New Zealand, the way to learn is to talk and share and collaborate and be better. And you, and you know me, Paul, I talk about the value of extraordinary. That's mm. one of our three values, open, optimistic, extraordinary. To be extraordinary, you need to set the bar high and you need other people pushing you to be better. Mm. So if you're seeing a creative team over here working on Sprite doing something and you're working on Coke, you want to go, wow, you know that thing when you see an idea and you think, damn, I wish I'd thought of that? That's what we want because that makes us all better. So it's working. We are working on these. It's live for us in this market. Well, I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about that, Rose. But um, Laurent, the next real sort of interesting conversation out of the Coke pitch is what are you hearing from uh, CMOs globally and regionally? What are the big things that are on their top two, three things that they're sort of keeping, not, I don't want to use the word keeping up at night, but are driving their focus? I think um, one of the things is I made, um, I alluded to the sort of ongoing global local debate. Mm. I, think, I think our global clients, global marketers are looking at how they're organized. Can they simplify and simplify to be faster, more effective, more efficient, the things that you're sort of referencing. So I think- And the numbers I nearly got, but didn't quite. (laughs) We'll come back to that at the end (laughs) when we start recording. Um, It's nice. um, Yeah, no, I mean, and that is, everyone is, is looking at it and scratching their heads and there's a lot of conversation about it. There's not one solution that fits all. Everyone's organized differently in different ways, uses different terminology, but that is a big debate and a big discussion, I think. You know, and particularly with, particularly as their data platforms settle down across their organizations, they're sort of thinking about how they're structured, which bits they centralize, which bits do they not. I think that is a big topic of conversation, I would say. Yeah. And do you see that it's kind of orbiting around the big end of town, like it's enterprise level tier one blue chips, or is it sort of moving through even to smaller, or is it just really global? Uh, global and regional, I would say. Right. Global and regional, it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say. And does it mean that there is change and demand for change and necessity for change on client side and how they're structured and how they think as well? Because this is not going to happen if it's going to be like the way they used to operate themselves, right? So there's this pressure on, on client side to sort of adjust and adapt. Yeah, and I think you have to, I mean, it sounds really cliche, but you have to change, try it, and then be prepared to change again. So if our client organization changes their structure, engages their agency after that, learn something through that process on how how to create better work, faster, all that sort of... You have to then be prepared to tweak again, I think, Mm. and not be too rigid in that sense. I mean, we will always work around the structure as best we can, but I think as partners, you know, we... Particularly when we're involved with a, a global client across brands, across markets... I'm sure Rose will touch on this, but we really get to know their business. Um, We really get to be their business partner. And I think we're in a good position to collaborate, advise on the big decisions around structure, actually. You know, someone asked me... Organizationally, you mean? 
hundred percent. Right. I really believe that actually. And um, because not only are we across the structure, we're in the work. So we know whether the structure helps create great work and we know where the work is thanks to the great structure. So we're in quite a practical area actually and i think we can make practical recommendations structure around the marketing team and data analytics not organizational wide sort of the big consulting transformation stuff you know are you talking about going that far yeah i am i mean i think it it depends on the company depends on the client but i think it's and yes possibly it starts in marketing but take data data uh, yeah no i'm a data guy i know you're a data guy i'm a data guy and i think if you take topics like data it goes beyond marketing it often will go beyond marketing and so there are areas i think we can go beyond marketing and into the transformation space that you're referencing absolutely Mm. so just if we look in two years time how far does this trend go for integration and whether it's client just one group holding group or whether it's what you're talking about where you're tapping a whole bunch of your networks to deliver where's the peak will it stop at some point and it becomes then it's flushed out those sort of brands that want to do that and then it stops? Or is this something that's perpetual? I guess I'm looking for how big an impact this is going to have on your business and the industry. Let me see if I can answer your question, if I understand it right. We believe in the power of our brands. I think if a client is wanting access to the whole of WPP, effectively, as if our teams are working well together, that's the ultimate integration for us as WPP. Mm. That's the way we would look at it. You know, we want to support our agency brands. We want them to be the strongest brands in their own right, in their niche or bigger than a niche, perhaps. And as long as they're working well together, collaborating, um, and the systems are in place, that's the ultimate integration point. I mean, you know WPP well, you can access most services and capabilities in most markets around the world. So as long as we can get that humming, I think that's the ultimate integration. But if the question is, is there a trend towards integration? I I would say yes, absolutely. It's funny though, I mean, this is why I'm just trying to get to the bottom of what integration today looks like versus what it was. I remember the late 90s integration was massive. Even with the Ogilvy's and so forth, there's a whole bunch of sort of attempts to do it then. And it's now 20 years on, we're still talking about integration. And, you know, you've been around a little while, you're not quite as old as me, but what does integration, what, 15 years ago look like what it is today? Is there a big difference or you just be able to deliver better and do it well? Well, I think there are more items to consider yeah, today. Yeah, true. That would be one thing I would say. Complexity. Yes, I think it's complex. You know, and I, I think we, I think a year, I talk about peak complexity. I think we probably got to that. Are we there yet? We... I think I think we're beyond it, luckily. I think. Oh, we're so beyond... really, we've, everything's going to be good from now on? <laughs> it's getting better. You make me feel better. That's right. <laughs> so we've peaked on complexity. Tell me about that. How does that work? I think we peaked on complexity at the peak of the day. I mean, Data is an enormous topic of conversation, Mm. but it's been a big topic for a little while now. So people have had time to make decisions, put plans in place, get plans in motion, I would say. And I think that's starting to settle down in our our client organizations, actually. So my view is we're sort of just beyond peak complexity. Now, we'll talk about metaverse at some point and what that means and so on and so forth. But again, we just have to approach it calmly and rationally. Yeah, well, I I think we should finish the podcast now. Peak complexity is a really good thing to hear about and I can just go and sleep now. That'll be great. Laurent, what other trends are clients sort of talking to you about globally? What's What are the big things? So I think there's a few things. Uh, First of all, trying to make sense of purpose, but specifically in their communications, you know, so how do they become more purposeful around sustainability, D&I? That is a, a really big trend. How to do it authentically too. Exactly right. And then a couple more, I would say, commerce and specifically omnichannel commerce. You know, COVID has, of course, accelerated that and it will be interesting to see what happens now. There's ongoing narrative around CX journeys, uh, you know, having a, a sort of cohesive and full customer journey. I think that's still important. And then two more, I think, is linking my first point, really, which is their communications to their employee experience right? and being so authenticity. But, but right down to the company level, right down to their employee experience. And I think that's important. Then the final one is um, the M word, uh, is the metaverse. Learning, you know, figuring out what to do, testing, trying things in the metaverse. I think that is a big trend at the moment. And you, you clearly believe that you're going to get mass take up on the metaverse. We do. We're speaking to every single one of our clients about it. And we're working with many of them on it as well. Mm. So, and yeah. the people are going to go there. The people are going to use it and do it. People are using it and yeah. going there. Yeah. yeah. I've got to catch up on that one. Listen, before we get to Rose, what does WPP globally look like in three years? How different is it as a beast today versus 225, if that's three years? Uh, I think so. It's about three years. I integrated networks, continue to bed in. I think it's 
more commerce, more data, more technology. You know, those are areas of our business that are growing rapidly. So I think that's what WPP looks like in three years' time. You know, we've got a really, really sound strategy. Just continue to execute on that. So the question of brands, you're clearly moving WP, sticking with a brand strategy. There was some debate for a while about whether there's a matrix that's required, like a consulting firm where it's all services packed under one brand. That's not going to happen. There's a big shake of the head, I should say. Let's, let's make sure that it's certainly not going to go there. The question really is, can all those brands have the capabilities you talk about across the board, or is this where you have a centralized function where you tap into, or are you tapping to expertise in other brands that some of your other brands yeah. can tap? If that made sense. Yeah. And the shake was left to right. That's so, right. Yes. It was a no. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was a definitely no. I think we're in a good place. If the question is the amount of brands we have and so on and so forth, I think we're in a really good place. And the proof is in the numbers and the work, uh, or I should say the work and the numbers and yes. those brands are growing. Yeah. So uh, I think we're in a really good place. And, and as I said earlier, I think it's about learning from some of these big global deals such as the Coca-Cola company, refining the way that we work, refining the model, refining how we work together and integrate. And I think that will be a focus for sure. You can always do better on that. No question whatsoever. It can be better. So that's going to be the focus, I think. Omnichannel, very quickly. Do you think what I'm hearing in some of the retailers here is that there's actually a move back at the moment, possibly because of COVID, where there's a demand to go back in store and bricks and mortar. People want to go and experience the real stuff, not just online. Is that a temporary blip, do you think? Or what, what, is that happening globally? Or is it just sort of something weird in Australia? No, I think the stats I've seen globally are in line with your sentiment on that. I think, uh, I think it's, come, it's not gone back to pre-COVID, but mm. it's come back a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's pulled back a little bit, for sure. Yeah. What did COVID do for WPP in terms of talent and uh, talent attraction, you know, retention and so forth? Did something happen? Did you do something radically different? There is actually one thing that I think is really impressive that happened during COVID. We, before COVID, we had a next generation program, which is a college leaver age or college leaver plus two years max work experience that come in and do a program for 10 weeks across WPP. What COVID did is it made that virtual and it grew it massively. Last year, we had 1,800 people join that program. Crikey. It's a very diverse group. And uh, one of the most inspiring meetings I've done through the whole year was to present to that group and be on a panel with that group. We hire typically about 12% of them at the end of the program, but it's just an opportunity, given you know the talent challenges that we have across the industry, to really speak to a um, diverse group of next-gen leaders. Oh, I bet you they're asking pretty interesting questions too, were they? Very interesting questions, yeah. It's fascinating. And uh, we have all our leaders week after week over the course of the 10 weeks, work with them. And I think everyone's involved from the senior levels of WPP. So I love the program. I think it's great. It's an opportunity for us and for them. How are clients restructuring themselves and capabilities? What are they looking for now in terms of their own talent to be able to build out what they're hoping to do with companies like you? What is the big pressure on client and capability? There are clients where we're building capability together. And I think the capability that we're building together is in the data and technology space. So I think... Paint that picture, what does that look like? So upskilling in data to be able to then work with the agency groups uh, in that area, I think, is very important. Right, and so is that an in-house resource? Are you putting your people into clients or are they building it themselves? Not an in-house resource. It's ensuring that marketers are more data savvy and more tech savvy, effectively. And, and so, you know, effect, all the whole industry comes up in that way, basically. But it's not an in-house resource necessarily. Mm. It's not an in-house team that we're building. It's, it's upskilling, effectively. Rose, so you're well across this, I'm sure, and it's all new to me, but WVANZ was a bit of a rogue for a little while and that it was cutting its own path versus the um, international ship. It's sort of a strategy was slightly different for a time. This is, it's realigning. Is that a fair observation? We're in lockstep with right. London and the beauty is that they've got a brilliant strategy and it's working. I'm a strategist, Paul. Think about this. I was the chief strategy officer before I came into this new gig and it is a smart effective, thoughtful, and the best part about it, simple strategy. Mm. And in my experience, clients love it when you can explain it. It's really simple. It's really elegant and it's working. And there's all these tools and methods and experiences and wins like the Coca-Cola company that I am now just applying down under and in New Zealand. Right. And thankfully, our people are loving it because they've got access to case studies, to technology, to learning modules. You know, all the things that we need to do. I and mean, we are going back to school, you know, craft skills, hard skills, being better at everything. 
And so we're in line and we're rolling it out locally. How long have you been at WPP? It's at least 45 years or something. No, it's only been, I was five and a half, six years in the chief strategy officer job. Right. And in this gig now, right on 12 weeks. Okay. So you've seen a bit. So let's just recap for a second. Your view in the rear view mirror of what happened to WPP here and where it is now, what went wayward? Look, I'm a futurist, so I'm going to focus only on the future. Nice answer, Rosehurst. I only focus on the future, and I think there's nothing to be learnt or gained in that. What I will say is that we've got these incredible networks that are incredibly good at what they do, and we're really learning how to be expert in an area. Not everybody can do everything. Mm. So I've got Ogilvy being an expert in what they do. I've got Wanaman Thompson being an expert in what they do. I've got that for White Grey. I've got that for VMLYNR. I've got that for Hogarth. I've got that for AKQA. And then the M's, Essence Mediacom, astonishing story and narrative to market. Wavemaker are terrific. Mindshare, good growth. What an incredible positioning and proposition to market. And then, of course, Group M with Amy Buchanan. So we've got a very clear narrative, a very clear strategy, and we are just telling our clients what that is. And thankfully, clients are saying, oh, love it. Makes perfect sense. Well, you have been speaking of, you've been doing, five, six months you've been in the chair? Pre- no, present. 12 weeks. Oh my God. 12 really? weeks, yeah. Feels like a long time. Well, it must be a long time for you because you've been sort of uh, working the streets. So what happens when you talk to your clients um, in the new gig? Yeah. What are they telling you? What are they saying about the business? And what are they saying they want from the business? Yeah. I've just spent um, quite a bit of time and I know all of our clients, which is handy, and our mm. top 20 in particular are saying, Rose, we really love the strategy. It makes both common sense but it's sophisticated without being, um, how shall I say this, you know, convoluted or difficult to understand. Their response is, you've got everything we need. We love that we can either get everything under the one roof if we want that. I mean, we always listen to our clients. If our clients say, no, we just want tech or just media, we don't oversell. I'm not a fan of that either. You've got to prove your credibility and have gravitas and deliver before you can grow with any client. But they are loving that they get it. They just understand it. The beauty for me is a story well told and a good strategy. And again, as a strategist, should be easy to understand and easy to execute. So your people, you talk about joy. Now, you know, we've talked about this before. It sounds to an old cynical journal, it sounds a bit fluffy. You know, let's get some joy in the place. Is it fluffy? Not in the slightest. To me, it's a incredibly important thing because if you do not love what you do, you will never be exceptional at what you do. And what I say to all of our people is, if you find joy in the work, often you love the work, then the money comes. That's Mm -hmm. kind of it. And in my work, I've always loved being a strategist. I love that. I mean, yesterday I had several clients ring just to have an off-the-record chat about their strategy, what they need to say to their board. And that's great, right? That's what you want your clients to do as an advisor, Mm -hmm. you know, in a consultative fashion. But the joy must be there because I don't believe anybody does exceptional work if they don't love it. So how many people are in the right jobs to have joy or do you think they can find it in the current gigs? Because how much of it is attitude? How much of it is a culture? How much of it is, you know, the curiosity and training that you're talking about? Where's the mix in that? All three. So having everybody learn and understand that continuous learning is the ball game. Every day there will be some new technology that we need to learn about, a new platform that we need to understand, metaverse. Laurent talked about that. We need to understand things. And I say to everybody, you have never finished learning, myself included. Now, because we've got access to the WPP Academy and all the incredible training that Global rolls out, our people are availing themselves of all the new training in tech, in commerce, so that we can speak with sympathy and with elegance, but mostly be thoughtful and substantive with our clients. So is that a mandate, Rose? In terms of they, they're doing more of it now because you're wanting to instill that in the culture. What's different about that versus what it was three years ago? Yeah, it's allowing people to say out loud, I'm not sure that I have the right skills and we're upskilling. Laurent talked about upskilling. Saying to people, we've got this course available. Go and do it at your pace online. Getting them to partake and participate in the training. I've said to everybody, we are all relearning. Let's all keep learning, reading, engaging, going to all the symposiums, conferences, availing ourselves of what our own partnerships are giving us the networks and certain of the media and the publishers, what can they teach us? So that's one. The second thing that I think is really, really important is just looking at the case studies from around the world. And we've got a lot of retail clients in Australia. We do incredible work globally for all sorts of retailers. Our local retail clients, like a Bunnings, for example, they want to know what we're doing. So I'm saying to people, access, read, learn. And if you haven't found that you're loving it, 
maybe the casting is different. Maybe we pop you into another one of our networks because we can have mobility across the networks or into another part of that business. And we've done that a little bit at the moment. It's working. Mm. So just on that, you talked about the networks. So we had a sort of, we canvassed it with Laurent, but what do the networks in Australia, what are their capabilities that are housed inside them? What's centralised? I think, you know, we talked about HR and finance and so forth as obviously a centralised function. Technology remains central in the WP ship. Is that right? It's tapped by the network. We have a few people in the centre with, with Tim Matheson, our Chief Technology Officer, who's doing a fantastic job. But every one of our brands has a technology team inside their business because they need to. Mm. CX and BX and UX, we need people who understand tech and the platforms and the relationships with Salesforce and Adobe and AWS and Google. So it's not enough just to have that in the centre. We can set up those frameworks and those partnership arrangements. Absolutely. We've got a great team, tiny team in the centre because, again, WPP is the support act. The networks are the rock stars of the show. They are the stars. I'm there to support. Tim is there to support. Rollo is there to support. But they've got the skills they need in those networks. So there's duplication and you're okay with that? Not a lot. Three people in the centre who help. Nice. I mean, there's duplication within networks, though, because they all need to have their e-com capabilities. They need their CRM, their MarTech, the data analytics, all that. I wouldn't say duplication. I would say area of expertise. So, for example, Wonneman Thompson might be it's sensational at consultative with data and CRM and one-to-one selling. Mm-hmm. Ogilvy might be really, really terrific at building you an ecosystem. AKQA, my gosh, they build the best replatforming in the world. They'll take a Bunnings and put them online. So it's tech, but there are 35 flavours of tech like there are at Baskin-Robbins, right? Mm. They each have their area of specialty in the tech. So very little duplication, but then that makes my job easier when clients say, Rose, where is the real expertise at WPP? And I can say very quickly, you know what? That's an AKQA gig. We'll go there. Rose, one of the interesting things that WP did was an early take, an early position on Ukraine. Explain that. It's extraordinary. So we shut our office in Ukraine to get our people out safely because we have an office there. And then, of course, we made the decision to pull out of Russia. And the number of emails that I got from our Aussies was incredible. In fact, I've got a bloke, Chris Solomon, who runs Mindshare for us in Melbourne, who has family in Ukraine, in Kharkiv. They don't work for WPP. WPP were the ones that got them out safely to Poland. Right. Unbelievable. He was... He rang me on a Friday night and said, Rose, I'm terrified. I don't know. What do I do? Can I even ask? I... I don't expect anything. And it went straight to Mark Reed and all the team there, and boom, they got out. That's an incredible example of really just being authentic and just putting your money where your mouth is. Incredible. When you said you pulled out, WPP pulled out of Russia, was that the people and the operations or just the operations you shut them down? What, what did that look like? And maybe Lawrence? Yeah, sure. So uh, that was the, uh, oper- we shut down our operations effectively. Right. Uh, and we did it very quickly. And we supported the people there, but uh, we, we shut down our operations. And what's the intent? Is that working brief? We'll see what happens in six months, 12 months, or it's shut down for how long? It's shut down. It's literally shut down. Wow, big call. Did it take long? What was the turnaround time on that? No, it was very, the decision was actually quite quick at the beginning. And then the process of doing that has been since then, since that decision, which was, you know, just uh, really days after the war mm. started, I would say. It was more than, it was weeks, but it was a few days after the, the war started. So it was a very quick decision. and. It's a difficult uh, situation and I think we spoke to our clients about it before, we spoke to our, our clients about it during and we spoke to our clients about it afterwards actually and uh, as they started pulling out too of their operations. Well, it's interesting you say because conversations I'm having, there's obviously a lot of tech companies that have coders in Ukraine and Russia, both are you know big powerhouses of, for code and, and engineers and so it's disrupted a lot of global work. Has that happened with you guys as well with WPP? It hasn't been too disruptive in that respect. Right. Um, just on Russia, I just want to do two things. First of all, I think it speaks to the the culture and the leadership, but I think it really speaks to the leadership we have under Mark Reed. It was amazing sort of watching him and the team during that period, which was very difficult. Mm, mm. And intense, very intense, I'd imagine. Yeah. And there's no playbook for it. It's not, it's not right. a textbook and the CEO's draw. Nothing on the shelf to pull from on that no. one. No. Can I ask, Laurent, the proposition I've sort of been asking people for a while is that particularly for the holding companies and marketing services firms, that what used to be, how media used to sort of be a dominant part of the relationship with agencies and holdcos, and is it being replaced by tech vendors? So when, when Rose talks about the Salesforce's, the Microsoft's, the Adobe's, and the rest, there's these new relationships that are being built between holding companies and agencies and a new part of the technology world. Is that starting to 
take some of the attention, the growth from what used to be essentially, you know, a very strong media connection with Holdco's. So do you mean is work going elsewhere? More like the capabilities and growth, where your growth is coming from and where the vast bulk of your activity uh, is. Yeah. It used to be a lot around media, right? Media, yeah. yeah. And now, yeah. now technology vendors are, are kicking in a bit. That's reasonable. It might be five years since, you know, how that trend has been in play. Well, I think the uh, media remains a dominant force in terms of how we do business. I think that if I look at our top pitches, they often are large media pitches, mm. for example. I think that the platforms that you reference, I mean, they enable growth for us because we have amazing partnerships with them, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Salesforce or Google or Adobe, and the list goes on mm. and on. And the closer the relationships we have with them, the more we can do with are common clients. And so it's another source of growth. I wouldn't say that it's biting into another part of our, our growth across the company. I just say it's more growth. I mean, media is growing, as you know, and the work that you reference with the platforms is growing. So for us, we just see it as growth in that respect. Okay. I think that answers your question. Yes. And also, I just want to ask you at a global level on these on the networks and the capabilities that they're building out beyond what has been traditionally, you know, whether it be media planning and buying, yeah. whether it be creative and so forth, you now got technology, analytics, MarTech. Yeah. How do you see the networks building that themselves? The way we approach it, we have uh, our CTO, uh, Stefan Pretorius. He sits centrally, actually in, happens to be in London. And we have a small team at the center in London, as like, just like Rose has here. In Stefan's team, he has a head of partnerships, and a head of technology partnerships. And then each of the platforms, we have a relationship leads across those. And that's how we build it out. So it's quite organized. Mm quite structured in that respect and it works really really well because there's a lot of volume coming through um you know from some of the ones i mentioned so we have got a sort of clear plan on how we approach it and how are the creative networks coping with sort of all this data and analytics stuff and that's to both you really a global level and, and local because it is it's a little bit legacy we know i get that they're evolving and they're sort of there is change being underway for some time but it's still quite a cultural difference and a, and a capability difference that what it might have been five or six years ago Rose is not looking so convinced about my proposition there. No, because um, data is insight, if you know how to interpret the data. I mean, again, I love data, demography. I'm a woman who loves good research. And when you give great research to great creative minds, my goodness, they can go crazy with that and right. turn it into the best ideas in the world. Understanding the human condition, that's data. How do people shop? How do they behave? I mean, my goodness, we just had a federal election. It's the most astonishing result for this country. I was so thrilled when I woke up the next morning to see that Australians have a mind of their own and they voted their conscience. Well, I says it all Brisbane with the Greens getting two go. seats in Brisbane. How does that go in Queensland? But that's incredible, right? Yeah. That's the data that shows the human behaviour, that shows the insight that'll set government policy for the next three years. So funnily enough, the most interesting people we have are the creatives who crave the data. Mm. Right. It's exactly what you want. That's where they find their joy. Their joy is in finding an idea from the data that just springboards. The other thing I'd say is to find creative network, because I understand where you're, you're heading with that. But maybe three or four years ago, I would have answered it differently. But well, how about you define creative network for me? Well, then, Laurent? About, I will. I'll I put will. it back on you. I will. I mean, so we've got VML now with YNR. Uh, we've got Wonderman now with Wonderman Thompson, of course. We've got AKQA Group, AKQA and Gray. And we've got Ogilvy Group, who have got a long heritage of working with data, working with some of the tech platforms and so on. So again, you know, I come back to they've all got data technology at their core now. And that's as a result of the WPP strategy of integrating their networks. Mm. Says it all really, doesn't it, when you put it that way. You're right. There's tech and data in with what would be a traditional. Exactly creative sort of content company. So, Rose, before we get into it, I've got about five themes we're just going to go bolt through because we've got a few minutes left. But in terms of here, I wanted to ask you, you talk about getting your people back to um, university, if you like, and learning. Capabilities. How much can you build at WP internally and how much do you need to bring in for some of the new world stuff that you're doing? What's the mix there? Well, look, we've had a lot of new people join us in the last six months. You would have seen, you know, mm. Scott Laird, Amy Buchanan, Nathan Young. We've got Maria Grievous coming to join to do Katie Rick Smith's job at Mindshare. We have replenished the bench. We've got incredible talent and some of the best talent in the country. And all of us are on a continuous learning path. I actually think it's the best talent pool I have ever seen in our business since I've been at WPP, which gives me great pride and joy for me 
because I think you need the best talent to win. And so, again, because we've got so much of this incredible content that Global is giving us access to, because now we're 100% part of the family, it's awesome. And so there's always something to learn. So if I need to upskill on the metaverse, I know where to go. If I need to talk about commerce, if I need to get it, you know, a little module on on what the new stacks are, on CDPs, on everything that's going on, there is a place for me to go and there is for every one of our two and a half thousand people here in Australia and New Zealand. Isn't that terrific? I've got a lot of young people. We're a young business, you know, average age, kind of 27 and a bit. And they're loving the fact that it's easy to access the learning to just be the best. And we just want to be better every day and reach for the stars. And I'm a fan of what could I do tomorrow that I didn't do so well today. And I do that every time. Even when we win a pitch, all I ever look at is all the things I could have done better. Right. You know, I'm a Croatian and a Catholic, therefore everything you do is awful and terrible and you self-flagellate your whole life. Yeah. Well, you're as messed up as a Kiwi. There then. you go, right? Yeah. But the, the truth is that we want to look at ways to be better, and I think that's a really healthy way to go. I do want to ask, though, so, you know, when you talk about your people sort of wanting to learn and so forth, what is different now? Why are they, is it that different to what it was three years ago in terms of their appetite to learn? What is different? You talk about this as something new. Yeah, is it really I, new? I think it is, because I think when you feel fearless and you know that there is no one or anything that will stand in your way and you're empowering your people. So I'm the wind in the sails. I want them to shine. I want every leader to step up and do their best, and they know they can come to me for anything. In that dynamic, what you're saying to people is, you know what, go, be amazing. No one's going to stand in your way. Win, come to me with a crazy idea. I'll go to London if you need me to, and we will make that work. When you know that you are being 100% supported, and I will do anything for our leaders to make them succeed, the safety net is there. That's my job, is to be their support network, is to support them. They go. And that's when you start to actually let people fly. And that's what I'm seeing in the last, you know, since I've been in the gig, probably in the last few months. It's nice. Random question. How much sleep do you get? Funnily enough, I'm good at switching off. I'm very good at going, you know what, it's not work at the moment. And, you know, I'm home with my you know, wonderful fiance who every woman in the world should have somebody as great as my bloke. But you must be very patient. He's, um, well, he's, you know, a thousand times better human being than I will ever be. He's just the best. Charming. Oh, there's love in he's, the air. He's wonderful. He's How a wonderful How much sleep person. do you get, Laurent? I didn't sleep very well last year, but I tend to sleep very well. Okay. So even with that big stuff that you guys have got going on. Yeah. So listen, Rose talked about how she enjoys pith um, with her people. So I'm going to get some pith from both of you. We're going to give you some three or four themes. I just want some immediate sort of responses of what comes out top of mind. So I'll start with you, Laurent, with Meta, the metaverse. Uh, the metaverse. Okay. I think it's an exciting untapped playground. Uh, hyped? No. Okay. Rose, yours on metaverse. Experimenting. Yes, not overhyped either. No. Okay, so I'd love to have that conversation, but we don't have enough time. So let's go to Rose, content. Editorial integrity. Content in terms of the business and production? Yeah, but in terms of being able to write a story and a really sexy narrative. Right, okay. Long content? Content for us, growing. Good. Creative automation? Growing. How big? Uh, I think it's a very important part of our business, but it doesn't take away from the need for creativity, so... Creative automation for you, Rose, in context of you saying authenticity and originality, how do you get there? That's a longer question, no, sorry. Simplifying the stuff that should be simpler. Okay. So can, I just want to get to that though. Creative automation, like it's less humans, there's less nuance in it, there's more machines. What happens clearly in terms of some areas, volume and production and efficiencies and effectiveness, get all that. But can it produce the sort of output that is nuanced for what is required to a, for a brief? Well, I think it's different. I mean, you'll never lose imagination and originality. That's always in our business. That's the dream, right? And that's the gold. The stuff that can be automated should be. What is that? Well, what should be automated? Well, when you're recutting for a format size or a particular, you know, stuff that just needs to go. There's a lot of stuff that just needs to be accurate. Prices, the changes in a price if you're in a supermarket model, all of that can be automated. Laurent, can AI and machine learning make creative automation better than what the, what the humans, what the people can do? Can it make it better? Or as good? I, I think as good, possibly. And it, the, just to build on Rose's point, I think that it allows for to spend more time elsewhere as well. So I don't think you're diminishing the effort overall. and You're just spending time in different places. In housing? We go back and forth a bit. The industry goes back and forth a bit. My honest and as direct as I can answer to that is I do sleep well, but it doesn't keep me up at night. It wouldn't keep me up at night, if that makes sense. It's not something that... I think it, look, it goes back to upskilling and building capability rather than in-housing. That, that term isn't um, something that uh, troubles me. If anything, I think we embrace it. I mean, we have to embrace it. 
you know, talked about peak uh, complexity or we've passed peak complexity. Are we still building to peak in housing in this particular cycle? As I take your point, we go around a little bit on that. Is it still building? Seems to be in this market, that's all. Does it? Okay. Mm. I can't comment on this. I don't know about this market. No, but globally, your sense is... Peak is a question whether it's peaked. Peak. So, so the demand and interest in, in housing, where is it in the trajectory from clients on exploring it, wanting to do it? I don't know. I don't know if we're at peak in housing. I don't know if that's a, a thing. I know. Um, we're just trying to make some stuff know, up here, right? But that's but, okay. Yeah, that's it's, good. it has it's to fun. be. Yes, Rose, in housing. Boomeranging back sometimes. Mm. It's hard to do really well. Having people and the right talent stick with is really hard as a lot of our clients are finding out because having someone just work on the same thing day in and day out is morally exhausting and kills the imagination and spirit. But I think it's a reality when we partner and we like to partner in that, we do it well. Laurent, ESG and purpose. So my view on that is we had a clear and strong purpose um, a few years ago when I joined WPP and that's the same purpose. It's evolved. It's got even stronger We've made some clear commitments on ESG that you know about. So I think from our perspective, I'm incredibly proud of what we're doing around purpose. Supply chain with scope three gets pretty interesting though, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I think, you know, Rose can talk a bit to this about what we're doing here in market, but um, I think we're doing really well in terms of sustainable production. It's actually, we were talking to um, some of the agency teams yesterday and it's, it's not even a trend, it's just embedded in the way they work and what they do in the process. Right? You want to talk to that, Rose? Well, it's essential. We had a federal election because of it, right? You think about that too. Between, you know, Ad Green and what Hogarth is doing with all of its production excess, because production is where you can really make a real impact on the carbon footprint, there are real goals and there are measurable outcomes. Everything's getting measured. The carbon calculator that Amy and the Group M team will be rolling out, every media hand plan has a carbon output attached as well. What does this plan generate and how can we change it? All of the initiatives that we're doing with clients, Volvo and the Living Seawall, we live this every single day. This is real. And for a lot of our clients who are listed on this exchange, it's a mandatory. ESG is a reporting thing for Mm. your shareholders. Our kids want to know. So when we look at who we're investing their superannuation money with, I get the question about, right, how much of their money is going into renewables, Rose? This is real for our people. Clients prepared to pay for the difference on that yet? I think so, yes, because again, their shareholders are demanding it. Last one, and then I'm going to let you guys go. Privacy and big tech. Rose, to you first. Um, Civil liberties matter. I'm a civil libertarian, weirdly enough, and I think privacy matters. I think we will find the happy balance between what Aussies want to give up versus the stuff that should stay private. Did the industry go too far? No, but I think that you can make direct consumer or one-to-one selling be stalking behaviour sometimes. And I think several companies have understood the line. They're learning where the line is. Your take on that, Laurent? We didn't spend a lot of time on trends, but I think that is one I would have called out on privacy in particular. I think that is actually a really hot topic. If you ask what's, what our clients are worried about, mm. that would, apart from the model and privacy is one of them. Absolutely. And we're advising them as best we can on that. Did the industry push the boundaries on what it thought, it, because it could do it, it did it, rather than thinking, you know, customer first and whether we should as an industry in terms of the tracking, the understanding, the web that goes on, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. Did the industry go too far, I guess? Because, because the reason why I ask is because the reason why we're having a privacy push from the yeah. regulators now is because they deem it that the industry pushed it too far. So the, the regulators are saying that. Do you agree with the regulators? I don't think the industry went too far, no. Okay. No. Big tech? You worried about dominance? No, but they're amazing partners to us. <laughs> you have to say that, I guess, but, don't but you? But they are. And a lot of what we're building, a lot of what we're doing, where we're innovating in particular, is in those areas. So, you know, no. I'm going to finish with my view on that one, which is that what I find interesting as a, a journo for 25 years is we used to have people in media, particularly media agencies, Rose's media group, they would be horrified by the fact if a television network had too much dominance and too much share versus the others. They wanted to kind of keep everyone honest. And so when they allocated funds in 15, 10 years ago, was to keep everyone in check. Now we have sort of consolidation with some of the big global platforms. No one's worried about that anymore. I just find that an interesting contrast that it used to be all about trying to keep everyone in check and not giving too much power. Now we've got power in a couple of hands and no one's worried. That's all. Final thoughts from you um, before we shut down, I should say, Laurent, is you go from here to where and what's next for you in the next coming months? What are the priorities? So I go from here to physically to London. Right. (laughs) We had a really good 2020 and 2021 in your business. 
And we had a really good 2020 and 21 in terms of client satisfaction, which we, as Rose knows, track meticulously under our client group. And in fact, I talk about peak complexity, but actually during those years, we reached peak scores or very high scores and did really well in your business. So we enter this year with uh, great client relationships and great scores, a lot of new business to bed in and get organized around. And I think that's probably the feeling for this year is continue to do really well with our clients, deliver on the new business that we want. And, and, and that's seem, important yeah. because it's, a, it's actually, a, from my perspective, try and put some humanity into my answer, it's a different feeling this year than it was last year and the year before. You know, 2020 for us at WPP was a great new business year and we won a lot of new business we didn't have. 2021 was a very good new business year. It was a bit more of a normal new business year. There was more up for review, yes. including for us. And it's a different feeling. It's a different pressure. We sleep well, less well at night and so on. And it feels like a slightly calmer year in respect to not just new business volumes, but also just how we're approaching the client work and the new business that we've won thoughtfully embedding that in. It does feel a bit different. Yeah, and it would seem that you are proving the doomsdayers and naysayers um, a little wrong and from the early commentary and and analysis of what happened post the fallout, or post the exit, I should say, of uh, Mr. Sir Martin Sorrell. You know, you remember the narrative around that Absolutely. it was WB, the end of the world's coming. No, the end of the world's coming and it, and it didn't come. Surprise, surprise. And I think the other thing I would say, I've been in the industry a long time. You know, there has been a bit of a narrative about the holding co's and where they're heading. And, you know, and one of the biggest, one of the things that pleases me, if you like, if I can say that the most out of the last two to three years is as an industry, we've shown our resilience. Mm. You know, and I'm really pleased about that because, and, and there's proof to that, which is the client scores in 2020, we got very close to our clients in the time of need, right? actually. And I think we did the same in 2021, you know, coming off the back of a, a year of COVID, everyone was exhausted, everyone was under pressure. So I think if I look back, I think a little bit all boats rise. I'm really happy that the industry is in such a good place, actually. Mm. And you're talking your peer set as well, competitive set. I'm talking about the whole industry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, good. Rose, yeah. finally from you. So what's next? Yeah. Well, to continue applying the global strategy locally and getting our networks to really get to know one another and what their skills are. I don't want like anyone passing themselves off as an expert when they are not. So there's a lot of who does it best. Let's go there and let's work together and bring all three of those businesses in or four of those networks into work on that client. And we're getting much better at that every week, which is terrific. Growth-wise, what are you projecting? I know what I want in my head and my heart, and I know what I've said to Andrew Scott and to Mark Reed about that. But look, for me, it's just, you know, being nor- going north, just going in the right direction for us. I mean, Australia's economy has been, as you know, it's a different economy to that of the, you know, the UK and the rest of the world. Mm. We had a bumpy start. We had Victoria literally closed down for two years. That's kind of 30, 40% of our revenue. So we're just getting back into a rhythm and getting back to growing with our clients. But, you know, this is a tricky economy. It has been through COVID. It's coming back now. We'll see, you know, what happens with inflation, the federal government, you know, interest rates. There's a lot going on There's in this lot, country, yeah. a lot going on. Yeah. Those things make me nervous, but our clients um, have every plan to spend and that's terrific. Uh, more consolidation? Uh, no. I done, think we're done. we're done. We're done. We know who we are. We know what we stand for and we just go forth and do our job. How many well. in a group now? How many companies, units? Nine networks. It's Nine clean. Networks. That's, that's what you're talking about. Nine networks. Nine networks. That's what we are now. Nothing off to the side with little specialist units. They all sit within those nine networks. They all sit within those nine networks. Okay. Rose Hersig on Ezekiel. Great to talk. Thanks for coming to the studio. Um, safe travels and I'm sure we'll loop back around and see what happens in the next 12 months on new business and new learnings. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Paul. You. Thank you. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.